Good morning again. It's great to see everybody here. Uh, I'm Randy, and if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to do that. But uh, I love good news, right? Good news. And Christmas is all about good news. I have two things of tidings of good news I want to tell you today. One of them is uh, for all of us, and uh, the other is a little bit more selfish. But uh, the first one is that we as a church have been for the last year specifically focused on paying down our mortgage, our debt, and we were able to put another 50000 on that. We're down below 400000 uh, which is from a million, which is great. Uh, so I know that things are tough, and uh, you guys are great, uh, generous givers, but a lot of times people give at the end of the year as advantageous uh, to them, and if you want to do that, everything that's above our budget will go toward reducing that, and our goal is to have that paid off in May. Uh, so that's a big goal, but I think we can do it. And uh, you guys are faithful. I just want to say that's good news, great news. The second thing's a little more uh, uh, personal for us is that now it's on Facebook, so I guess it's um, official. Uh, we're going to be grandparents again. Our youngest daughter, uh, Laura, is uh, they're expecting. So that's coming up. So that's good news of great joy uh, for us. Uh, we've known about it, but we haven't told everybody for a while. But that's exciting. A baby is always good news. And and that's why we're going to be talking about today and for the next few weeks here uh, about Jesus. And we're going to be uh, kind of couching it in a series this year, the story you thought you knew. Have you, ever, um, have you ever read a book and you thought, man, I love this book. And you told people how much you loved it. I know we've got some people in book clubs that read books. And then you went to the movie, but it was nothing like what the book was. And you're so disappointed uh, you know, we, we went to a movie one time and uh, Lori read the book. She said, this is so great. All through the entire movie, said, this is not what the book was saying. You know, I'm like, I don't, I didn't read the book. I just want to watch a movie, you know, but it's not, it's not the same thing, you know, and you were disappointed. Or maybe you thought you knew all about a subject and then you watch a, document, uh, a documentary on uh, Netflix or something and you were surprised to find out that you didn't know nearly as much about that topic as you thought you did. And it was really good to kind of get a, you know, a clearer picture, a broader picture of that, or a, a study of an individual or something. Well, that's kind of like the Christmas story. All of us have probably heard the story of Jesus' birth all of our lives, and we thought, man, I know all the details, you know, Bethlehem and Silent Night and all those things. I know all those things. Uh, we assume that we know it, and so we don't give it much thought, and it just kind of becomes one of those things that we do year after year. But the reality is, that many times we might think we know the story and we really don't. So a closer look at some things will help us know it a little bit better. We're going to take some time to look at the story itself and the people involved in it and find that we probably don't know the story like we think we do. But here's the thing. It's not just for factual information that we need to know these details. There are some things of speculation that we'll, we'll talk about. We're not looking for facts. What we're looking for is we want to see the beauty and the majesty, majesty of the story and the glory of God revealed in the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. We want to see that in a fresh way. So I'm going to invite you to go with me for a few weeks here. We're going to be talking about some things. And, and to be honest with you, it's going to shatter some things. Maybe you thought you knew. Uh, it's, going to, it's maybe going to bring, shed some light on some things that maybe or even church teaching at some point uh, that for some of you, maybe you grew up thinking that uh, the Bible said that it didn't really support. But uh, I, I want you to approach this with an open mind because I think this is going to be an exciting study. And we're going to begin today by talking about what you thought you knew about Jesus' earthly parents, Mary and Joseph. 
You know, church uh, history has kind of made them out to be a little bit more and a little bit unreal and somewhat super spiritual in some ways. But you know what? Mary and Joseph were just regular people. They were regular people who found themselves in a crisis pregnancy situation like a lot of people do today. So let's begin by looking at the story in Matthew chapter one. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. However, excuse me, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So this is the birth announcement. You know, I, a few moments ago, I got to tell you about our, our daughter and son-in-law. You know, they're expecting a child and we're happy and it's a great news. But for those, this birth announcement came a little bit different. Mary's pregnant. She's going to face public disgrace and Joseph is going to give her a divorce. I mean, that's quite the news, isn't it? I mean, that doesn't seem to be all that happy, a, a surprise announcement there. And, uh, and it's not a great start we might think, to a life. Let's look at some background on these individuals. Let's look at Joseph first. I have to be honest and tell you, we don't know a lot about Joseph. We don't think we know a lot about him because not a lot is revealed. But Matthew's gospel gives us a, a little bit of information about his ancestry. For example, he had a great pedigree. He was in the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and King David and King Solomon. I mean, that's a great ancestry to have behind you, but, but Joseph was not a king. He was not royalty. He's a very common man. He is a carpenter. And when I think about carpenters, I think about the people who frame and build homes and put on roofs and finish them out and everything. But don't think about that kind of carpenter because lumber was pretty rare in that day. They certainly didn't have the kind of size lumber that we have today. And houses were mostly built of stone or mud brick of some sort. And while Joseph was a carpenter, he may have built homes, but more than likely he was the kind of guy that made yokes for oxen and household furniture, farming tools, doors, things like that. That's probably the kind of carpenter that he was. And as was common in that day, uh, he was known as Joseph the carpenter. Instead of having the last name, it would be his description or his, his job. And also was common that day, his children probably, including Jesus, learned the trade as well. And it was passed down from generation to generation. And we look at Joseph himself. Joseph is a silent character in the Bible. I don't know if you ever realized this, but there are no recorded words of Joseph in the Bible. We have lots of people talking, but there are no words of Joseph. So he's kind of a silent guy. He just kind of did his job and took care of things, but he didn't talk a lot or it's not recorded anyway. And in fact, the gospel of Mark doesn't even mention Joseph nor is he mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament beside the Gospels. So he is a silent, humble kind of guy, a servant of God, who did the job that God called him forward to do. And his exit from the story of the Gospels is not even recorded. We don't know what happened to him. It's kind of left unexplained in Scripture. But as you know, he's a very important person in the Nativity story. He's a very important character there. And he is included in the story later on of finding the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple when he uh, was left behind and uh, teaching the teachers of the law when he was at the age of 12. So that's the last time that we actually hear anything about Joseph. Mary is mentioned all throughout the complete history of Jesus' ministry, even down to the cross where he is dying. But Joseph is gone without a trace. 
Now, there are lots of traditions about Joseph, a lot of them. Normally, whenever we think about Joseph, we think that it was a young woman and a young man, right? Well, tradition doesn't carry that forward. And I'm going to shatter some things here and maybe a little gross you out a little bit. Uh, but uh, some of tradition says that Joseph could have been in his 90s, which is really out there. But again, this is tradition only. And that certainly would explain a possible death early in Jesus' lifetime. Uh, some people say that, that Joseph died when Jesus was 18 to 20 years of age. Now, a man of 90 marrying what we're going to discover is a very young woman is kind of weird in our day, but it probably wasn't all that unusual in that day. I prefer to think Joseph wasn't nearly in his 90s, that he may have been a little bit older, considerably older than Mary, but, but not that old. That just kind of makes me feel better, all right? So, but Joseph was an older man, and that might explain why he died and really isn't in the life of Jesus, ministry of Jesus. But you know what? Even though he was older, don't influence or don't uh, dismiss the influence of Joseph on Jesus' life when he was young. Oftentimes, we go right to Mary. We know that Mary, you know, she was a part of his life all the time. And, you know, we sang that, heard that song, Mary, did you know your baby boy, you know, was going to go through this, this ministry and, and, and end up dying? And we oftentimes miss that on the male influence and the father figure, earthly father, who framed and shaped this young man's life, his understanding of who he was, uh, his character, his understanding of God. Uh, we don't know uh, a lot of the influence uh, of, of God on Jesus in his young life. No doubt he ministered to him, but there was a man in Jesus' life who was there as he grew up, a man who led him, encouraged him, advised him, counseled him, and modeled a, a, a Christian godly character. And one of the main things we learn about Joseph is that his character has his integrity. And so when the story opens up, we find that Joseph is deeply committed to, he is engaged to, and no doubt deeply in love with Mary. But then he discovers that she is pregnant and he knows it is not his child. He knows it's not his child. He doesn't have any idea about the story. Their relationship was pure and celibate. So he's a kind, loving man caring about her, but he's a man of convictions as well. And sometimes you have to act on your convictions. When you know what is right, you have to make a decision, even though the chips are going to fall, uh, you know, and Joseph, he's got to do something about this, this problem. He has to act in some ways. Mary's news is devastating for him. I mean, you can imagine how disappointed he was, how hurt, how betrayed he felt, maybe even angry. But if you notice in the account, he doesn't act on any of these emotions. He doesn't lash out at her. He doesn't shame her. He, he doesn't do any of those things. Uh, instead, he has compassionate empathy for her. His heart goes out to her, and he tries to find a way to call off the engagement. And in fact, he would take the blame for himself. If you called off an engagement, we're going to talk about a betrothal, what it means in a few minutes. But if someone called that off, I mean, they would be the one who would be publicly shamed and embarrassed. So he decides he's going to take the blame. He's going to divorce her quietly, an act of sacrificial love. Because when the community finds out about her pregnancy, it's going to be hard enough on her. There's going to be real problems for her going forward. And so Joseph's going to do whatever he can do to make it easier. A bad situation, making the best of that. So that's Joseph. And then there's Mary. We know a lot more about Mary than we do about Joseph. And 
We see her role in Jesus' life and ministry more clearly as she continues to kind of shape him. She's the one that led him or asked him to perform the first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, turned the water to wine. You know, so he was, she was always trying to frame Jesus and, and set him in a place where he could be successful like every mom should do, right? Now, Joseph isn't mentioned in the Bible, in the, excuse me, in the Old Testament, but Mary is alluded to. In Isaiah chapter 7, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And so Jesus' birth, this is just one of many prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. And it said in this prophecy that the, the Messiah would be born of a virgin. She would conceive and, and call him Emmanuel. And that would make him extraordinary. The fact that he was born of a virgin because that didn't happen, right? This prophecy was well known among the Jewish people, and it was passed down through generations like all the scripture would be. And no doubt many young Jewish girls thought, what if I was the one? What if I was the one that would carry and deliver the Messiah into the world? Even though that would be a huge thought to imagine, there were no doubt many that that thought, what an honor to be able to do that for God. Now, Mary had her own pedigree. The, the Gospel of Luke, Matthew tells us about Joseph's ancestry, but the Gospel of Luke tells us about Jesus, uh, excuse me, about Mary's ancestry in chapter 3, and it also includes King David and Abraham, but it traces her ancestry all the way back to Adam. And that wasn't all that unusual. The, the Jewish people loved their genealogy. They loved to be able to trace themselves back, uh, at least through back to Abraham, but in this case, all the way back to Adam, the first man. And Mary loved God. She wanted to serve God with all of her heart. But she was just a, small, a, a poor girl in an insignificant town, um, very humble beginning, and very humble and poor family, with very little expectation that her life would ever be different than her mother's and her grandmother's and the ones before her. You know, Catholic tradition tells us or says that Mary was sinless all of her life, even before Jesus' birth. But that is not uh, found or supported in the Bible. That's kind of one of those things that, that's kind of out there that's kind of made Mary someone maybe that she probably wasn't. Um, she was faithful. She was godly. She was pure and courageous, but she wasn't perfect. You know, the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I'm sure that Mary, while she was a, a wonderful, faithful, godly young lady, she wasn't perfect as well. But she had met Joseph and they were anticipating a life together but she had, I'm sure, no idea what laid ahead. Another thing I want to look at, not only them individually, but their relationship. They were engaged or pledged to be married. Now, we know what engagement is today, but back then, it was very different. Uh, a Jewish betrothal was much more significant and much more binding than today's engagement period. Sometimes people get engaged and they discover, you know, this is a bad idea. Before they get married, they call it off. Didn't happen very often in that day. First of all, you were pledged. That could happen at the age of, of 12 or so. And uh, sometimes if it, the, 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 children, the, stu, uh, the people were the same age, the parents of a boy would approach the parents of a girl and ask if their children could be pledged to marry. And, um, and, if they, uh, and then they would begin a, an engagement period. And so the betrothal would begin. Uh, in the case, if it were an older man, like we said that Joseph may have been older, he would approach the family of the, of the girl and say, I can provide for her and I'd like to be pledged to marry, uh, to marry your daughter. 
And so in this betrothal period, though, there were no sexual relations. It was purity. But the man could call the woman his wife because it was so bonding. In fact, Mary and Joseph were talked about as husband and wife uh, before they were actually married. Betrothal that day was so binding that it could only be broken by divorce or by the death of one person. That was the only way. So it wasn't just, oh, we're calling it off. Uh, it actually had to be a formal divorce that was given there. And then the final phase of the betrothal period was the wedding, which would happen about a year after they were betrothed or as the, the young people got old enough to marry. Uh, so the bride, in fact, would even go, often go and live with the groom's family before they were married. So she would kind of get acclimated to the family, uh, but they still remained separate and pure. Um, more than likely, Mary was young. Some say maybe between 13 and 15 years of age. She was a virgin and she was looking forward to her marriage. But of course, she had no way of knowing what would be before and no way of knowing that she would be a young widow, which she probably turned out to be. Now, not only was Joseph and Mary um, young, one old, one probably young, they were also poor. They were very poor in that day. We don't know what true poverty is in our world. We really don't. The, you know, the more I see it, uh, we don't know what poverty is in our culture today. Uh, poverty in our culture means that you get free health care and phone and data and phone uh, money for food and, and, and rent. You know, money's given to you. In that day, there was no such thing. If you were poor, poor meant that you just barely got by, you might starve to death or you had to beg for food. But uh, everybody struggled in that, day, that day. And it was more than likely a hand-to-mouth existence for many people, kind of like in third world countries. Third world countries, they work all day to buy food for tonight. And tomorrow they get up and they work all day to buy food for that evening. It's a hand-to-mouth existence. And, uh, and more than likely, that was how most people lived in that day. We know that Mary and Joseph were poor from the scripture. It uh, doesn't tell us they were poor specifically, but when they went to dedicate Jesus in the temple, uh, they had uh, an obligation to go and do that at a certain age, and they would do that, and they would take an offering. It says in Luke 2, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus, or him, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So when they would go to worship God, they would be required to bring an offering. And they had several of these throughout the year. They made many sacrifices to God. Uh, obviously, in the Bible speaks about the tithe. So the people brought one-tenth of everything that they, they owned. But they also gave far beyond that. And one of the offerings that they had to give if a child was born, uh, was that they had to bring an offering. And the most common offering was a lamb. So if you had a child and you were poor, not only were there expenses perhaps of the child, I'm sure they didn't have the kind of hospital bills that we have today uh, with the birth of a child, uh, but there might be additional expenses, but they also had to come up with an offering to bring to God a lamb. But if you were super poor, then you could get by by bringing a couple of doves or pigeons uh, maybe you went out and caught them yourself, but you brought them and offered them to God. And this is what Mary and Joseph brought. So the fact that they brought a couple of birds and gave them to God instead of a lamb was probably evidence they didn't have any sheep. They didn't have any, any animals. They probably were very poor. We also know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 
And that too was a prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem, which was a town of David. Remember, he was an, a descendant of David on both sides, mother and father. And Bethlehem was David's uh, town of birth. But Mary and Joseph lived in a town called Nazareth, which was about 70 miles away. And you know, Nazareth wasn't an upside place to live. In fact, they didn't have a very good reputation at all. Maybe because Nazareth was a small town, so nondescript and backward, um, that's why it was said that it was a very negative place to come from. In fact, when people heard that Jesus had been born, uh, they called him Jesus of Nazareth, even into his ministry, and, and they would say, can any good thing come from Nazareth? So in other words, the town was so backward and so uh, despised, you know, that nobody had any expectations from somebody who was born there. So here we have a couple of people, not yet married, turn up pregnant, probably the least likely people to welcome the Son of God into their home. Have you ever thought about how much different you and I would probably plan this if we were doing it? I mean, we would find a stable home and family that were financially secure, and uh, you know they, they would have everything ready, and people would know it, maybe give them a title in that day, or at least a name, and, and obviously in a town that people would have high expectations. But none of those things were the setting for Jesus' birth. They were so ordinary. And you know what's cool about that is they were so ordinary that you, you and I can identify with them. We can identify with people like that, because we've all probably been there at some point in our life, not poor, obviously not well-known, not popular, not royalty or anything else, just simple people trying to get by, and as believers, trying to be faithful to God. But what we find in their lives is that there were some defining moments that made all the difference in the world, like you and I will have defining moments in our lives. Their moments change the entire trajectory of their lives. Think about these moments in their time. A defining moment is it transcends time in such a way that what we do with that moment creates an enormous impact or it carries enormous significance for the rest of our lives. That moment, this moment when they learned about Jesus were defining moments. You know, the the Greeks had two words for, for time. One of them was chronos. And that word obviously is where we get our word chronology, where we talk about our calendar and our time and weeks and months and years, uh, even hours and everything, our, our chronology. But the other word for time was keros. And it was such a unique word that we don't even have a word in our English language for that. You know, uh, the Greek language had a lot of words for the same thing. And we don't really have that in most cases. So this word keros has to do with the quality and the importance of time or a moment in time like a one-time opportunity. Something occurs in a moment, in a time, and we're presented with a choice or a decision that we have to make or a potential action that will have a deep impact and significance or importance on the rest of our life. It's a time when we make a choice and then the choice makes us. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says this, be very careful then how you live not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So the Bible says that we need to be careful. We need to be wise about every moment, every decision, because you never know if that decision, that moment might lead to some dramatic choice or 
something that will impact the rest of your life. And all of us can maybe remember that moment in our lives at some time. You know, I remember the first time I saw my wife. Uh, we were at college. I won't go into details uh, about that, but I just remember seeing her and I thought, that, that person is special. A defining moment in life that we all have about some topic. And I think that's what marked Mary and Joseph more than anything, their Keros moment. I mean, think about Mary, this young woman, out of the blue, an angel appears and tells her that she's found favor with God, that she's going to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. She's going to conceive a child, a son, and she's going to give him the name Jesus. Imagine yourself being faced with that moment. I mean, how would you react? Just totally out of the blue. Nothing is planned. It just happens. Will you have fear? Would there be confusion? Would there be resistance? Would there be you know, what would you, would you laugh uncontrollably? What would you do if that moment came? And Mary had to decide on the spur of the moment, how am I going to respond to this? She lived in a small town. Certainly she thought about the, the impact of it. She would have to tell Joseph she was engaged. She knew Joseph wouldn't, would struggle understanding it. Her parents would have to know. Her friends, all of her neighbors, everybody would find out. And sooner or later, the, the word would be out. Who would believe this impossible unlikely story that she made up, right? Legally, Joseph could divorce her. And with uh, his unwavering integrity, she knew how he was. He would almost have to do that. And the, the shame would be almost unbearable. And then there was another thing that she had to consider. The penalty for adultery in that day was death by stoning. And it wasn't just a threat, do you recall the time later on in Jesus' ministry when the leaders brought a woman to him caught in adultery and they started, they the stoner. So it obviously happened. It wasn't just out there. Adultery was punished by death. And she would never be able to hide this pregnancy. And she would never be able to explain uh, in, in that day a very short pregnancy, you know, uh, to, to people. There were plenty of, of uh, risks, but Mary was at peace with it all. That's what's amazing. Listen to the conversation between the angel and Mary in Luke chapter 1. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. This, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So the initial introduction already had her troubled, Right? But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you're going to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His, his kingdom will never end. How can this be? Mary asked the angel. She's begun to reason this out. Since I am a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. It's amazing how she received that. There wasn't any fear. She was troubled when she saw the angels, as anybody might be surprised. But when it began to sink in, no fear, no hesitation, she said, may your word to me be fulfilled. May it be as you have said. As simple as that. Now, probably it wasn't as simple as that, but that's what's recorded 
And Mary certainly didn't push back against this, uh, this news. That was her defining moment. And she was told, what did she do? She was obedient. She submitted to God. And then think about Joseph's defining moment. When Mary told him of her pregnancy, I mean, you know, it had to be, he had to have been floored. This wasn't the Mary he thought he knew, right? When she just laid that out. As we saw, he could have just publicly exposed her. He could have cleared his name and walked away, but he decided to quietly and privately divorce her because it had to be done legally. And he would be the bad guy. He would take the blame. Things might come, you know, might be obvious down the road, but, but he was going to take the blame here. In Matthew chapter 1, it says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did, did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until he, she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph accepted the baby with faith like Mary did, and they were an awesome, faithful couple. He did not divorce her, which he could have done. In fact, the Bible says that he went and married Mary immediately, and he took her home to care for her and the baby. But they did not consummate the marriage until after Jesus' birth. I think the fact that it says they did not consummate until after Jesus' birth implies that they did later on. And Jesus had several brothers and sisters, so much for the idea that Mary was a perpetual virgin. That's not supported in the Bible. You know, Joseph and Mary, though, are incredible examples of how we should receive Jesus and how we respond to those defining moments. His coming into our lives should be welcomed and received with joy. And while the circumstances of his birth were certainly more uncomfortable and more life-altering than any of ours would probably ever be, they submitted to him with our entire being. You know, if God had sent an angel to you and said, I've got something I want you to do, and uh, not carry the Son of God, but, but if he said, I've got something I want you to do, and it's going to mean the loss of loved ones, it's going to mean scandal. It's going to mean the ruin of your reputation. It could mean imprisonment or even death. Would you do it? Would you do it? I know it sounds unreasonable. And if you only looked at the personal cost, you might say no. You might say, no, I think you need to, I think you got the wrong person here. You need to go find somebody else. I'm not the person that can handle that. Mary or Joseph both could have said that before. But if you looked at it in faith and you said, Lord, what do you want me to do? and then you're willing to do it regardless of the cost, that would be an amazing faith. And that's kind of the meaning of a defining moment that you are presented with a challenge from God. You trust him with your life. You accept his son Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You take a stand for him. You follow his call and you're obedient. Or maybe that defining moment is a little bit different for you as a believer. Maybe that defining moment is when you're asked to forgive someone. Maybe that moment is when you're asked to make a major sacrifice financially or in some other way. 
Maybe that moment is where everything leads up and you're given the chance to share your faith with someone and you know it's right there and you have to decide in the moment, am I going to do this or not? And let me tell you, it won't always be easy. In fact, I'm sure it wasn't easy for Mary and Joseph. If you look down the road, Mary's heart was broken probably many times as she saw her son in ministry and being rejected and ultimately being put to death about 33 years later. And think about Joseph. Joseph made a lot of sacrifice. He took cold showers for nine months so the baby could be born of a virgin. Um, he, he took a pregnant wife on a 70-mile journey to Bethlehem. Imagine what that was like, guys. He made a delivery room out of a stable. Probably had no idea what he was doing. He ended up taking his young family as a fugitive of the law, being on the run in a foreign land for two years when they went to Egypt. But I got a feeling that Joseph never regretted one moment of that. And I am confident that Joseph will, Joseph will be rewarded for his faithfulness in heaven. And you know what? So will you and I if we just trust him in that defining moment. Let me ask you about your defining moments as we kind of wrap up. A moment when you know what you ought to do, but you're faced with a dilemma. Do you have the courage to do it? The boldness, the strength, you know, it may change your life, but you know what you ought to do. And let me just say this, there is one defining moment that we will all face in our life, and that is the question, what did we do with Jesus? You know, maybe you faced that, that question when you were younger, as a child, you were growing up and it seemed like things were just kind of drawing to a point where you needed to make a decision for Christ, decide one way or the other. Or perhaps as an adult, you made that decision and you remember that moment, you remember every part of that and you decided, I'm going to give my life to Christ. Let me ask you this, what are you doing with that defining moment? Have you followed through on that? Mary and Joseph didn't just say, yeah, we'll do it, and then they lived life on their own. Their lives were totally changed because of that. Jesus changed everything, and he will change everything in our life if we are obedient to him. Or maybe as a Christian, you have other defining moments that's going to take a lot of faith and a lot of strength to be able to do that. Whatever it may be this morning, I want to challenge you to think about two great examples, Mary and Joseph, who said yes. And they lived that life, and it changed everything for them. Now, we're going to go to a time of response, time of decision this morning. And, you know, maybe you've got a decision on your heart and mind that you want and need some prayer about or someone just to counsel you on. Maybe that decision is the greatest of all, and that is about Jesus, to give your life to him. Or maybe it's a decision as a believer that you know God is leading you to, but you just need someone to help you cross the line. If you want to come up and spend some time in prayer personally or with one of us, we'll be available. I think Yamira is going to step up and Tony and I will be up here. We would love to take this time to pray with you and help you find the will of God for your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you so much for the life of, of Mary and Joseph as they were called, chosen and called by you for a very specific task. And Lord, we know that our call is different. But our call is the same in that it is, will we accept Jesus? And will we let him lead our life and maybe even change our life? Lord, I pray that we would say yes to that call. Lord, I pray that if there are those who this morning who are struggling, 
with questions or needs or decisions that God, you give them the courage to reach out to you, first of all, but maybe to reach out to others for some prayer. We bring these things to you, Lord. Father, we love you, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.